Good afternoon, I'm Dennis Vittorian, and this is the 25th Hour, helping you remember everything that happened beyond the 24-7 news cycle. Now, in this week's news for the week of April 4th to 10th, 2021, Coney Island reopened, vaccinations keep increasing, the two-case school closure rule is now the four-case rule, Governor Cuomo gets a Republican challenger, his anonymous accuser details years of grooming, and the state passes a budget. The president keeps fighting for his infrastructure bill, pitching his own federal budget proposal, announced gun reform executive actions, and is still trying to get a handle on immigration as almost a quarter of Americans have gotten vaccinated. Now, onto the show. Things may have changed by the time you hear this, starting with the de Blasio administration. City workers are getting ready to come back into the office following an announcement by the city a couple of weeks ago aiming to have its workforce back at their desks starting May 3rd in phases. However, an increase in COVID numbers stemming from the spread of viral variants has caused workers to protest the start date. New Yorkers are still having trouble getting their federal stimulus checks despite being the perfect candidates to receive them, not being marred by disqualifications in income or being an aged-out dependent. The problems are being blamed on bureaucracy and misinformation, with homeless New Yorkers and those without bank accounts facing hurdles receiving their checks. Coney Island has reopened this Friday at 33% capacity, and the city's beaches are all opening at the end of May. Coney Island comes back, the rides come back, and now New York City will come back. You can feel it. And everybody, listen, uh, I'm really excited about what's going to happen in Coney Island this summer. This is an amazing community, one of the great neighborhoods of New York City. I always tell people, if you're visiting New York City, you cannot appreciate New York City, you can't feel New York City, you can't understand New York City unless you come to Coney Island. A mobile vaccination bus will start driving around the city, administering up to 200 vaccines a day, and 25 walk-in vaccination shelters will be expanded to us to reach senior citizens easier. The mayor announced a new program aimed at providing health care to so-called COVID long haulers who continue to experience symptoms months after recovering from COVID, which include psychosis and other mental health symptoms. The program Aftercare seeks to connect patients with mental health, physical health, financial, and community support services. When asked by Brian Lehrer what the biggest challenge for de Blasio's successor is going to be, former de Blasio counsel Maya Wiley said it's homelessness. Wiley later in the week spoke out against her former boss, de Blasio, by saying that the mayor didn't always follow her legal advice, after reports came out showing that Wiley co-wrote a fundraising ethics memo for the mayor. De Blasio has undergone investigations in the past for his fundraising practices, although he ultimately was never charged with any crimes. Maya Wiley also received the endorsement of New York's Congresswoman Yvette Clark this week. Comptroller Scott Stringer proposed free summer day camp for city kids in an effort to get students who were stuck doing remote learning the past year to get up and moving. Stringer also proposed free movie vouchers to those who've gotten vaccinated as a way to incentivize New Yorkers to kickstart the economy. Stringer also proposed pop-up pools to give residents relief during the hot summer. Whether it's right or not, Andrew Yang's profile increased even more after the spate of anti-Asian hate crimes, with the former presidential candidate positioning himself as the city's top Asian public official, showing up at anti-Asian hate crime demonstrations. Wall Street executive Ray McGuire took a break from the campaign trail in New York to briefly attend the Derek Chauvin trial in the murder of George Floyd, joining the Reverend Al Sharpton. Sean Donovan's father, Michael Donovan, contributed another million dollars into a PAC supporting Sean, the former HUD secretary under Obama. The Donovan money represents some of the biggest outside contributions from outside New York City into the mayor's race. More than 60 city election candidates are calling on the city campaign finance board to create an exception in the rules regulating campaign spending limits for policies that increase accessibility for the disabled, including paying for sign interpreters. Comptroller candidates Councilman Brad Lander and Council Speaker Corey Johnson threw elbows this week as the two candidates seen as the top two candidates for the position persuade voters who the right choice is for Comptroller. Lander accused Johnson of delaying his food delivery workers bill, while Johnson denied the accusation and said Lander has an inability to work with his colleagues. The spat happened shortly after Johnson was endorsed by his third major labor union, the 32BJSCIU. Lander has repeatedly accused Johnson of being controlled by the Uber lobby. 
As hinted at last week, de Blasio announced that the 2 case rule in schools is being altered. Originally, the rule was that if at least two school staff, teachers, or students got sick with COVID, the whole school shut down for a couple of weeks. Now, the city is going to close schools for 10 days if there are four or more cases among students and staff and the cases are traced back to the school. The head of the teachers' union, Michael Mulgrew, said that it makes sense with what's known about the virus now to change the rule, even though he earlier decried the mayor's decision before more details were known earlier in the week. The two-case rule obviously has led to an extraordinary number of closures. We know that any other standard will lead to a lot fewer closures. That's what parents want to know. Parents of 3rd to 8th grade students have to opt in whether they want their kids to take state tests this year. Parents have until April 15th to sign their kids up for the English state exam, April 29th for the math exam, and May 28th for the science tests. Students won't be penalized if they don't take the tests. The state had canceled all other regions' exams because of the pandemic, but couldn't cancel the aforementioned subjects because they are federally required. A majority of students are still deciding to learn remotely after this last chance for parents to opt their children into in-person learning. 65% of students are still going to learn from home, while 40,000 families switched to the option of making their children go to schools, which are now all open. Parents can get $500 from the Department of Education as long as they go through training to become wellness ambassadors tasked with addressing their children's mental health. The DOE is trying to target the mental health toll taken by the community from the pandemic. The program is funded fully through private donors from Robin Hood Gray and the Tiger Foundations. An upcoming rezoning of the Soho and Noho neighborhoods of Manhattan has brought a fierce wave of anticipation and opposition at the same time. The redevelopment seeks to add 3,200 more apartments over the next 10 years, but even despite the nearly 800 affordable apartments that can be built with the rezoning, community members say taller buildings and big retailers will change the neighborhood. The mayor sounded open to the possibility of a casino being built in Manhattan, saying that the legislature seems to be ready for community input, respecting local zoning law, and that he'll work with the state legislature. Now, unfortunately, for those in favor of a casino being built in Manhattan, a casino was not funded in the state legislature's recently passed budget. A survey conducted by the Coalition for the Homeless of 200 homeless individuals in New York City revealed how much they actually hate shelters, which reveals the challenge of city leaders to try and get homeless people off the streets and under a safe roof. Most say they left shelters because of personal safety reasons, with the remaining minority having trouble sticking to the rules. The doorman who just watched an elderly Asian woman getting kicked in the head while she was on the ground and did nothing to help her were fired this week. The assailant had been arrested and charged. For some reason, the NYPD lied about not having a relationship with surveillance firm Clearview AI. Clearview got into hot water this week after a BuzzFeed investigation revealed the facial recognition software company was being used by multiple police departments throughout the nation, despite denials of them being used at all. Facial recognition software hasn't been proven to be all that credible when it comes to minority criminal suspects revealing false positives. The NYPD has apparently been using Clearview software as early as two years ago, despite denials as recent as last year about there not being a relationship. A man in Queens was charged with apparently claiming ownership to a bunch of buildings he didn't actually own in the Bronx, renting those buildings out to unsuspecting tenants, and then collecting a million dollars from housing assistance programs meant for actual landlords. Paul Fisbane was arrested and charged with theft of government funds, among other charges. 19 people are getting ready to get their convictions vacated following the passage of marijuana legalization since the law expunges sentences that disproportionately impact minority communities from the war on drugs. 90 convictions were thrown out based on the perjury of one police detective, Joseph Franco, representing some of the biggest number of dismissals recently in the history of New York's criminal justice system. After investigations revealed that Franco lied on the stand about certain criminal activities that never happened, Brooklyn DA Eric Gonzalez moved to dismiss the 90 convictions, while Franco's legal counsel says Franco will be vigorously defended in court for his perjury charges. Queens DA Melinda Katz said that her office isn't going to prosecute Sir Carlisle Arnold, 
who was arrested in January but was apprehended by police with one officer's knee on his neck. Prosecutors agreed to drop the case at Arnold's court appearance on Thursday. In its attempts to fight off the Manhattan DA, Cy Vance's investigation into its finances, the Trump Organization has hired criminal defense lawyer Ronald Fischetti, who worked with Mark Pomerantz, the federal prosecutor who joined Cy Vance's team against Trump's company. Meanwhile, Vance's team seized financial records from the ex-wife of Trump Organization CFO Andrew Weisselberg with reports pointing to prosecutors seriously targeting Weisselberg as a potential informant. Vance's team also seized records from Weisselberg's daughter-in-law, Jennifer Weisselberg, including financial records and a laptop. The Manhattan DA also reportedly hired a former fraud investigator that also worked with special counsel Bob Mueller on the Trump-Russia probe, Morgan Majanos. Majanos was apparently instrumental to the conviction of former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort. After the CDC's pronouncement that COVID is spread through aerosolized droplets, rendering scrubbing surfaces clean primarily obsolete, questions remain for why the MTA is still disinfecting surfaces in the middle of the night. Experts and public health officials don't knock the MTA's cleaning efforts, however, but the MTA said it'll evaluate the CDC's latest pronouncement. A majority of New Yorkers want overnight service to return, according to a poll conducted by the group Data for Progress. Beneficiaries of the MTA's COVID death benefits program are saying that they're receiving way less than they were supposed to after taxes were applied. The MTA knew that taxes would make payments substantially lower, and they lobbied the state government for a change to the tax on the benefits, which are as high as 37%. The same benefits don't get taxed the same way for NYPD or FDNY death benefits. The MTA also announced that city subways saw 2 million customers for the first time since the start of the pandemic, a symbol of a return to normalcy. Over at the city council, as reported prior, three city council districts are restarting their community's participatory budgeting, the practice of allowing neighborhood residents to vote to decide how to use a certain amount of appropriated taxpayer funds, this time totaling $4.5 million. Stephen Levin, Carlos Menchaca, and Brad Landers districts are the ones that took part in the vote. Brooklyn Councilwoman Alika Ampri Samuels is proposing a bill to ban gas hookups on new buildings next year, which would make New York City the biggest city enacting such a ban. The measure is in line with the goals of environmental activists who want to move closer to renewable energy. A candidate running to replace Councilman Mark Traeger in South Brooklyn is being accused of lying about his resume. Stephen Patzer, who's competing against former Assemblyman Alec Brokrosny and Traeger staffer Ari Kagan to represent the neighborhoods of Bensonhurst, Bath Beach, and more, is said to have falsely represented the endorsement of the New York Democrats, which isn't the official state party, as well as making up his past job titles with his former employers. Queens Councilman Robert Holden doesn't want out-of-city remote students to be part of city schools. Holden asked City Hall for exactly how many students are remotely learning away from the city, saying those students are taking up seats for students that live in the city, including the Gifted and Talented program. The DOE said it's trying to be flexible with families trying to survive during a pandemic. Moving on to the Cuomo administration. New Yorkers all around the state can now qualify for a vaccine this week starting this past Tuesday. The numbers are still rising relatively around the state, with Monroe County reporting more than 300 cases in one day on Thursday. The Washington Post reported that Cuomo was mixing the political with the official just around the same time the governor was blaming Trump for the same thing, particularly that Cuomo sent out surveys gauging New Yorkers' attitudes on how the governor was handling the pandemic comparatively with the former president. The Post also pointed to Cuomo's directing staffers to help write his book. The governor also admitted on Wednesday that although his family had exclusive access to testing, he claimed he wasn't overseeing that access. The assembly is uh, looking at testing issue, and I don't want to get ahead of them. Uh, but I was not involved in uh, in the testing program to that intimate that intimate level. Uh, people who I would meet with, uh, and I would be in exposure with, I was aware they were being tested. So if you came to see me in my office. Uh, you would be tested, uh, and that applied with my family also. But the Assembly is doing a review on that, and uh, I would let them do it. 
The state rolled out its Roll Up Your Sleeve campaign, trying to urge New Yorkers throughout the state to get vaccinated through online and TV ads. The governor announced an essential workers monument advisory committee to look for a place to build a monument to honor 17 groups of essential workers who stepped up during the pandemic. After the budget was finalized, there were questions remaining about whether the state would still tax unemployment benefits, and Budget Director Robert Muhuka said the state would continue to do so, despite the federal government forgiving up to $10,200 in federal unemployment benefit taxes. Completing a cycle that raised controversy, Governor Cuomo signed a bill into law that ended legal protections for hospitals and nursing homes that loosened their legal standard of care for patients and nursing home residents. Cuomo, using his emergency powers, gave nursing homes legal protections theoretically to free them up to act at the outset of the pandemic, but reporting of nursing home mishaps and eyebrow-raising political contributions, combined with Cuomo's own perceived abuse of power, led to the legislature to repeal those protections. According to a document obtained by the Post, the Cuomo administration began tracking nursing home deaths that occurred outside of the nursing home facility since last April and yet still withheld the data from investigators and lawmakers. State Attorney General Letitia James is investigating the Marriott Marquis in Times Square for allegedly laying off hundreds of workers at the outset of the pandemic because of a labor dispute, allegedly running afoul of labor laws. The New York Post in turn reported on rumors that Cuomo had cheated on his former girlfriend celebrity chef Sandra Lee before the two broke it off in 2019. According to unnamed sources, the Post said that Cuomo was possibly cheating on Lee with at least one staffer and pursued other relationships with many others. Sandra Lee and Cuomo were together for 14 years. An unidentified woman who accused the governor of groping her at the governor's executive mansion gave more details at the Times Union, saying that the governor had actually groomed her for two years by making subtle, sexually inappropriate moves and provided a fleshed-out account of what exactly happened one night at the executive mansion. The city reported on how, despite Cuomo's being buried under a scandal, he's still moving forward on the Empire Station Complex plan, which would add 10 new buildings to the New York City skyline skyscrapers that would add offices, retail space, and apartments by 2038, with one of the skyscrapers approximately the same length as the Empire State Building. The key behind the plan is to develop the area around Penn Station, which Cuomo has been obsessed with developing since 2016. The current opposition to the plan is based on the governor ramming the plan through without consulting with local stakeholders. Mayor de Blasio wasn't a fan, saying it's friendly to the developers, but not the community. Two Republicans announced that they're planning to run for the Republican nomination to become the next New York governor next week. Congressman Lee Zeldin of Long Island announced that he's running for governor. So I have spoken to New Yorkers from all across this state, and uh, it doesn't matter whether you're middle income, you're from upstate, downstate, uh, you're getting hit with new tax hikes now. Uh, it hurt about the public safety and cashless bail. Uh, so after talking to New Yorkers who feel like this is a last stand, a last great opportunity to save New York, and the fact that to save our state, Andrew Cuomo's got to go, I'm announcing here this morning on your show that I'm running for governor of New York in 2022, and we are going to win this race. And Andrew Giuliani, former New York City mayor and Trump personal lawyer Rudy Giuliani's son, said he's exploring a run as well. Finally, the state is going to follow the CDC's recommendation that social distancing between students should be decreased from six feet to three feet. At first, Cuomo didn't jump on the bandwagon right alongside the Blasio when the mayor announced the rules change as well, hampering the city's ability to make the change official since the state controls the city's schools, but now it can't. The change will make it easier for schools to operate and remain open during the remainder of the pandemic. Moving on to the state legislature. The state legislature and the governor Cuomo hammered together a state budget that was overdue, totaling around $212 billion. Corporate and income taxes would increase for a projected revenue of $4.3 billion a year, the return of a middle-class tax cut, and relief for homeowners and tenants. New York City wealthy taxpayers would pay the highest combined rate of state and local taxes in the country. A $2 billion fund will be established to assist workers with unemployment aid who did not qualify through traditional eligibility, including undocumented workers. Online sports betting was also legalized after a long effort to do so in the state. 
$2 billion also goes towards rent relief based on federal standards. Schools get a $3 billion cash infusion for an increased budget of $29.5 billion, sticking to a foundation aid formula meant to comply with court orders to equitably fund schools throughout the state. CUNY and SUNY tuition froze for the next three years. $1 billion went towards small businesses and grants and tax credits. $350 million goes towards infrastructure investments. And $415 million goes towards Medicaid cuts that are now being restored and more. The law that legalizes mobile alcohol delivery expired this week with the expectation that the legislature re-ups the law. Moving on to the state judiciary. A class action lawsuit was filed in the Federal Western District of New York against the Rochester, New York Police Department for how they handled protesters demonstrating against the Daniel Prude case referring to the episode last March where a black man had a mental health episode and on narcotics was apprehended by police, had a spit bag placed on his head and held down to the ground. He passed away due to asphyxiation. The Rochester City Council had since worked on passing police reforms with the mayor being investigated for when she knew about the incident and how she disclosed the details. The class of protesters, apart from alleging poor treatment at protests, point to a history of racist and inhumane use of force against demonstrators. The movie mogul who fell from grace, Harvey Weinstein, filed an appeal in the Manhattan Supreme Appellate Division asking the court for a new trial after claiming the trial judge in his rape case did the wrong thing by allowing four women to testify against him who weren't even pertinent to his final sentence as their testimony wasn't corroborated or had to do with his charged crimes. Weinstein was sentenced to 23 years in prison for raping multiple women under the false pretenses of advancing their careers and launched the Me Too series of powerful men reckoning with their sexual improprieties. Weinstein's lawyers said that jurors shouldn't have been allowed to hear the women's testimonies while the trial judge allowed their testimonies to rebut Weinstein's claim that all of his sexual encounters were consensual. Taxi medallion owners, usually cab drivers who pulled together money to own the right to drive a yellow cab around New York City, filed a class action lawsuit against New York City for allegedly inflating the price of medallions, which sometimes required drivers drivers to take out high-interest loans to purchase and then not doing anything to save those who saw themselves go bankrupt when the medallion's worth plummeted. With the advent of Uber and Lyft, the value of medallions has decreased substantially since just about anyone can become a taxi driver now around the city. When taxi drivers saw their medallions lose value, a series of suicides hit the taxi driver community, spurring the city to take action, bailing out bankrupt drivers and putting limits on the number of Uber and Lyft drivers. A new report released by the New York Unified Court System in conjunction with Greenberg Traurig LLP found that although the court system definitely benefits from technological advancements like automatic court transcriptions and live stream trials, the court system has to make sure those advancements don't hinder justice, as sometimes undue delays and mistakes caused by those very same advancements can mess things up. The Appellate Division First Department upheld NYU's suspension of three student-athletes for attending off-campus parties without masks or social distancing, reversing a Manhattan trial court's ruling to reverse the suspension and strike them off the students' records. So be careful out there, kids. Don't party irresponsibly. The Appellate Court maintained that it had limited jurisdiction over the decisions of private universities. The city's first jury trial since the pandemic is set to begin on Monday, marking a return to somewhat normal life in the courts. But it'll be a slow return as screens surround the jury and lawyers can't whisper to each other anymore as they normally do. The Commission on Judicial Nomination, tasked with finding a candidate to replace the soon-to-retired Judge Leslie Stein, has approved an all-female list of candidates for the first time. The Commission is still yet to announce candidates to replace the late Judge Paul Feynman, who passed away last week after abruptly stepping down from the court to focus on his health. Moving on to the Biden administration. The TSA reported that they've had the most passenger screenings of all time during the pandemic, almost 1.6 million people, with spokesman Mark Howell saying it's because of spring break. An average of 3 million Americans are getting vaccinated each day, with the past Saturday receiving 4 million vaccinations in one day. The Biden administration is looking for another company to distribute AstraZeneca vaccines after the contractor Emergent BioSolutions messed up Johnson & Johnson's vaccines last week at a Maryland manufacturing plant. Sources say the administration is already in talks with two other potential distributors. 
Two people with direct knowledge of the matter say that the problems at the emergent plant have been known as far back as the Trump administration, along with the Biden administration. Johnson & Johnson said that its vaccine supply will drop by 85% next week. In the meantime, Pfizer asked the FDA to allow the use of its vaccine on children as young as 12 years old after trials showed 100% effectiveness in that cohort. The CDC said that cruises won't have to mandate that their passengers be vaccinated in order for the party ships to get up and running again. Anthony Fauci also said that the federal government won't make vaccine passports mandatory either. I doubt that the federal government will be the main mover of a vaccine passport concept. They may be involved in making sure things are done fairly and equitably, but I doubt if the federal government is going to be the leading element of that. I do believe that there will be individual entities that will do that. There may be theaters that say you don't get in unless you have proof of vaccination. There may be colleges or, or, or other educational institutions that do that. I'm not saying they should or that they would, but I'm saying you could foresee how an independent entity might say, well, we can't be dealing with you unless we know you're vaccinated, but it's not going to be mandated from the federal government. Press Secretary Jen Psaki also went on to say that the Biden administration is not planning on having mandatory COVID vaccine passports or encourage states to do anything of that sort. Uh, there are a couple key principles that we are working from. One is that there will be no centralized universal federal vaccinations database and no federal mandate requiring everyone to obtain a single vaccination credential. The former federal point person who helped the U.S. respond to Ebola, Gail Smith, has been taken in by the Biden administration to lead their vaccine diplomacy efforts, trying to convince wealthier nations to distribute their vaccines to assist in poorer countries. The president announced this week that he's accelerating his timetable for all Americans to be eligible for vaccine to April 19th, as well as revealing that 150 million Americans have been vaccinated, putting the nation ahead of schedule to reach 200 million vaccinated Americans in his first 100 days. My message today is a simple one. Many states have already opened up to all adults, but beginning April 19th, every adult in every state, every adult in this country is eligible to get in line to get a COVID vaccination. The Biden administration is launching a new funeral subsidy program that would cover up to $9,000 in funeral costs for those who passed away from COVID. 500,000 people signed up for healthcare on the government's Obamacare exchange on healthcare.gov, according to the Department of Health and Human Services. Continuing in the push to pass his infrastructure plan, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen made her first major speech of her tenure, arguing for a global minimum corporate tax rate aimed at preventing offshore relocations so that companies escape paying taxes in their home countries. The Treasury Department sent 125 countries a model on how to tax corporations so that global conglomerates don't get away with not paying taxes. Vice President Harris was traveling around the country touting Biden's infrastructure plan, stopping at California, pitching the plan alongside Governor Gavin Newsom. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg and White House National Economic Council Director Brian Deese have been spreading a misleading narrative about how many jobs the infrastructure plan creates, citing it'll add more than 19 million jobs to the economy, but Moody's Analytics, the firm that assessed the job numbers, said that it's actually going to increase the economy by 2 million jobs, and that's if the plan passes. Otherwise, the economy is adding more than 60 million jobs between the end of 2022 and the start of 2023. Speaking of infrastructure, Vice President Harris is only now finally moving into the Naval Observatory, the traditional vice presidential home. It took so long because of renovations in place before Harris was elected alongside Biden. The White House released clarified guidance on what Biden wants from companies in its infrastructure proposal, signaling tax increases, raising $2.5 trillion over 15 years, and replacing fossil fuel subsidies with tax incentives to move away from emissions production. A minimum 15% tax would be applied on companies making over $2 billion in income. 
The president said he's willing to compromise with Republicans on the tax numbers, but that inaction isn't an option. Last week, I said that once Congress is back from recess, I get to work right away because we have no time to lose. So here we are. Democrats and Republicans will have ideas about what they like and what they don't like about our plan. That's that's a good thing. That's the American way. That's the way democracy works. Debate is welcome. Compromise is inevitable. Changes are certain. And the next few weeks, the vice president and I will be meeting with Republicans and Democrats. Hear from everyone. And we'll be listening. We'll be open to good ideas and good faith negotiations. But here's what we won't be open to. We will not be open to doing nothing. Inaction simply is not an option. The number of jobless claims rose to 744,000 last week, reversing a trend being seen as an economic recovery after numbers went down. The White House announced its 2022 budget pitch to lawmakers asking for $1.5 trillion. $715 billion is requested for the Pentagon, a slight increase from Trump's request of $704 billion last year. $769 billion would go to so-called non-defense programs, including increased funding for schools, environmental programs, the CDC, transportation, and more. And the overall budget request is about $106 billion more than last year. The new fiscal year begins on October 1st. The request is sure to start debates amongst Democrats as more voices rise up against an inflated defense budget. The White House announced an upcoming public hearing on how educational institutions handle sexual assault allegations, letting stakeholders provide public comment on how the system should change. Critics of the current process, including former Trump Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, tried giving accused parties more due process, while supporters of reforming the process say the Title IX procedure doesn't give women more of a say. In response to questions about what Biden's administration will do about Trump's border wall, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said that any construction will be limited to plugging in gaps at the wall that was already constructed, as White House officials continue to review prior policy. Government figures point to 19,000 unaccompanied migrant children coming to the southern border for the month of March alone. Underscoring the issue, the increase included a 71% jump in the general amount of migrants that approached the southern border, numbering about 172,000. The Justice Department disclosed in a recent court filing that 445 migrant children are still separated from their families, which started under the Trump administration's family separation policy, meant as a deterrent against continued illegal immigration, but only ended up creating a humanitarian disaster. Government data shows that Biden administration is spending $60 million a week sheltering more than 16,000 unaccompanied migrant children, with costs expected to rise. Ten emergency shelters have been built over the past few weeks trying to keep up with the demand of migrants showing up at the border, with many being children and teens coming by themselves. After just serving barely over three months, Biden's choice for his border czar on his National Security Council, Roberta Jacobson, who formerly served as the ambassador to Mexico, said she was going to step down at the end of the month. Jacobson said she only intended to serve for the first 100 days of Biden's presidency. Biden announced a series of executive actions on gun reform, taking aim at ghost guns, which are 3D printed or disassembled guns that escape federal background check or serialization requirements, gun parts that transform pistols into rifles, and red flag laws, which allow law enforcement to seize weapons from those deemed dangerous to themselves or to others, especially in domestic violence situations. Today, we're taking steps to confront not just the gun crisis, but what is actually a public health crisis. Nothing, nothing I'm about to recommend in any way impinges on the Second Amendment. There are phony arguments suggesting that these are Second Amendment rights at stake from what we're talking about. But no amendment, no amendment to the Constitution is absolute. You can't yell crowd, you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater. We call a freedom of speech. From the very beginning, you couldn't own any weapon you wanted to own. 
when the very beginning of the Second Amendment existed, certain people weren't allowed to have weapons. So the idea is just bizarre to suggest that some of the things we're recommending are contrary to the Constitution. Gun violence in this country is an epidemic. Let me say it again. Gun violence in this country is an epidemic, and it's an international embarrassment. The president is also set to nominate a gun reform advocate to the top of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, David Chipman. Chipman is the head of the anti-gun violence group, the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. Jill Biden is planning on initiating her government program called Joining Forces, aimed at helping military families access employment, child education, and mental health care. The Environmental Protection Agency said that it's reversing a position taken from the prior administration that shied away from fighting what's called environmental racism, referring to how poor and minority communities bear the brunt of environmental destruction the most. The new EPA administrator, Michael Reagan, said that he's reviving the efforts to push back against environmental racism. According to people familiar with the discussions, the Biden administration wants to double the target set by the Obama administration to cut American greenhouse gas emissions. The new target is to cut those emissions by 50% by the end of the decade. As he promised on the campaign trail, President Biden announced the formation of a commission to study whether expanding the Supreme Court is necessary, which progressive liberals have called for after former President Trump got three nominees onto the court, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. The commission will take about six months studying the issue, which also includes setting term limits for justices. Bob Bauer, former President Obama's counsel, and Christina Rodriguez, a former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in Obama's Office of Legal Counsel, are co-leading the commission. The Iranian and American delegations began the indirect talks through mediators this week at a meeting between Iran and the signatories of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the agreement initiated by Obama and five other world powers that limited Iran's nuclear program in exchange for removing sanctions. The talks are aimed at getting the U.S. and Iran back together into the deal. Signatories agreed to make two separate working groups tasked with finding out how to get both countries to agree on how to rejoin the agreement. The Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, said that he's going to visit Israel next week, marking the first cabinet-level visit from the Biden administration to Israel. The agenda will include Syria, Iran, and other regional threats. The Biden administration is also reversing cuts initiated from the Trump presidency that took away $235 million meant for UN programs aiding Palestinian refugees, angering activists that say the money was used to prop up radical elements of the anti-Israeli-Palestinian faction. John Kerry, the U.S. Special Envoy on Climate, met with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi to discuss the U.S.'s commitment to the Paris Agreement, a worldwide effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and combat climate change, entered into during Obama's time. Delegates on the American and Iraqi side met for a third round of talks revolving around the presence of American troops in the country, which have been around for one reason or another since 2002. Trump signed an executive order that mandates the exit of American troops by May 1st, which Biden increasingly casts doubt on. After rumors increased of governments pressuring China for its genocidal policies against Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang by boycotting the upcoming 2022 Olympics in China, a senior State Department official told CNBC that there aren't any discussions of the U.S. boycotting China's upcoming Olympics to pressure China's human rights record. The State Department spokesman Ned Price said that worries about a Chinese attack on the Philippines and Taiwan would trigger obligations on the part of the United States, meaning military action one way or another. The Philippines are worried about a Chinese naval buildup in the nearby South China Sea, and Taiwan is worried about increasing rumors that China would forcefully annex the independent region. China considers Taiwan to be officially part of the Chinese mainland. The Biden administration also instituted export controls against Chinese firms that are helping the Chinese government build an exascale computer capable of making a million trillion calculations a second, which is used to create hypersonic vehicles for warfare. The export controls were started under the Trump administration but weren't done in time. The Biden administration is reportedly preparing sanctions in retaliation against Russia's solar winds hack and reports of the country placing bounties on U.S. troops' heads in Afghanistan.
You may recall the SolarWinds hack involved the hack of a software used by multiple federal agencies and Fortune 500 companies, which U.S. intelligence agencies blamed Russian hackers for, and eventually gave Russian hackers emails from the top seats of the agencies. The New York Times reported on a scam run by Trump's fundraising operation promising to take one-time donations from donors, but actually Howard kept taking money from recurring payments. The Trump campaign and the RNC refunded $64.3 million, which amounted to a little more than 10% of the Trump campaign's online operation. Trump's spokesman Jason Miller waved away the refund, saying the campaign had a less than 1% dispute rate. Former HUD regional administrator from New York and New Jersey under Trump, Lynn Patton, was fined $1,000 and barred from serving in the federal government for four years by the U.S. Office of Special Counsel for goading NYCHA residents into a political video endorsing Trump for re-election in 2020. Federal employees are prohibited from engaging in political activity while on duty. Patton insists she never tricked the NYCHA residents into participating in the video. According to emails reviewed by the Washington Post, Trump officials praised interfering in the CDC's efforts reporting on the coronavirus. Appointees like Paul Alexander and Michael Caputo tried obstructing scientists' messages, editing report findings, and giving the president false talking points. Over at Congress and in the House, after last week's attempted attack on the barricade outside the Capitol, killing the assailant driver and a Capitol police officer, Minnesota's Representative Ilan Omar said how the attack could have been worse, which for some reason prompted North Carolina's Congressman Greg Murphy to tweet at Omar, saying it would have been worse if the attacker flew planes into buildings also. The congressman had since deleted his tweet, but not before others noticed. A Reuters Ipsos poll found that half of Republicans believe in false narratives about the Capitol insurrection from January 6th, from Antifa being behind the attack to the rioters being peaceful. 60% believe the election was stolen from Trump, which isn't true. Retired Lieutenant General Russell Honore said this week that after a review of the security failures surrounding the January 6th insurrection incited by former President Trump, rioters were spurred by propaganda giving them, quote, a little BS, and that Trump was like someone who kept lying about a horse in order to get a saddle from his neighbors. Longtime Democratic Florida Representative Al Hastings passed away at 84 due to pancreatic cancer. After being nominated as a federal judge by President Carter in 1979, he was impeached and convicted by Congress from bribery and perjury. He made a comeback running for the House in Florida in 1992, winning his seat and staying ever since. With Hastings passing, the House Democratic majority is at its slimmest margins, possibly making Speaker Nancy Pelosi nervous about making sure her chamber can continue passing liberal priorities. Currently, the divide is 218 to 212, down from the 222 lead from just this past November. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer announced that the House is going to take up a series of bills after lawmakers come back from their recess, including D.C. statehood and equal pay bills. More information came to light this week concerning the investigation into Florida Representative Matt Gates, who is being accused of sex trafficking allegations by the Department of Justice for allegedly taking a 17-year-old girl across state lines and paying her for sex. Gates vehemently rejects the accusations. It was found that Gates' investigation actually started from one of his friends back home, the former Seminole County, Florida tax collector, Joel Greenberg, who himself is being investigated for sex trafficking. Greenberg is reportedly cooperating with investigators, potentially placing Gates in even greater legal jeopardy. One aspect of the investigation that leaked showed Gates paid Greenberg 900 bucks, which Greenberg in turn paid minor girls. The New York Times also reported this week that Gates supposedly asked Trump for a blanket pardon, although it's not clear whether the White House was aware of Gates' allegations back then. Former President Trump later released a statement denying Gates ever asked him for a blanket pardon. Gates now has at least one House Republican calling for his resignation, Adam Kinzinger, who, by the way, also voted to impeach Trump, who in turn hasn't forgotten about it since. And Gates also faces a House Ethics Committee inquiry into his child sex trafficking allegations, among others. The committee also said it's investigating Republican Tom Reed after the New York congressman was accused by a former lobbyist of unwanted touching and unhooking her bra at a bar hosting a political event years ago. 
over in the Senate. Missouri Republican Senator Roy Blunt said that if Biden scales back his infrastructure plan, it'll be an easy win for Biden, claiming that only 30% of Biden's infrastructure plan actually has anything to do with repairing America's crumbling roads, bridges, and more, relying on the definition of infrastructure as, every, as anything to do with just those topics. Biden's plan includes more money for things like modernizing the electric grid, expanding broadband internet, replacing water pipes, as well as research and development into manufacturing. So Blunt's claim is really dependent on how you would actually define infrastructure. Meanwhile, moderate Democrat Joe Manchin said in a radio interview this week that as it stands, the infrastructure bill should lower the increased tax rate against corporations from 28 to 25 percent and said he wouldn't support the plan as it stands right now. It's not clear how many West Virginia constituents are the ones calling for Joe Manchin to ask for Biden to lower the corporate tax rate. Elizabeth McDonough, the Senate parliamentarian, ruled that Democrats can use the budget reconciliation maneuver to get around Republican filibusters two more times, with one of those times potentially being set up for Biden's infrastructure plan. Budget reconciliation was already used once for the American Rescue Plan. McDonough recently denied Democrats a chance to increase the minimum wage to 15 an hour in the COVID relief bill through her past recent rulings. Finance Committee Chair Ron Wyden from Oregon and other Senators Sherrod Brown and Mark Warner released an international tax plan which rethinks how companies calculate their international taxes, but it doesn't have any numbers yet as the lawmakers anticipate negotiating in the midst of the infrastructure plan. More talks continue about ending the filibuster to try and pass more Democratic policies. Even Senator Dianne Feinstein, California's longest-serving senator, said she is open to ending the filibuster in order to pass voting rights bills specifically. Moderate Democrats Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema continue to push their opposition to changing the filibuster, supporting the procedure's role of, quote, making the Senate a more deliberative body. Manchin said in a recent interview said that there's no shot he would vote to get rid of the filibuster, even though he said he might be open to making it a standing filibuster, forcing senators to speak out their objections until they literally can't stand anymore. Sinema also continues to brush off progressive pressure to get rid of the filibuster as bills get held up, including voting reform, gun reform, and more. The filibuster requires that the Senate has a 60-vote majority instead of a 51 simple majority. As the fallout continues about the recently passed voting law in Georgia requiring voter IDs for certain voting methods, limiting the number of ballot drop boxes and more, Republican politicians are speaking out against companies that are now criticizing the law despite Georgian lawmakers saying they were plugged into the legislative process from the beginning. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell from Kentucky said that companies should refrain from getting involved in politics, calling it stupid, but then made an exception for political donations, of course. I'm, I'm not talking about political contributions. Most of them contribute to both sides. They have political action committees. That's fine. It's legal. It's appropriate. I support that. I'm talking about taking a position on a highly incendiary issue like this and punishing a community or a state because you don't like a particular law they passed. I just think it's stupid. McConnell later walked back his comments but said he gets frustrated at the behavior of corporations taking liberal sides of the vote reform debate. Moving on to the federal judiciary. The Supreme Court sided this week with Google against the computer software company Oracle in a dispute revolving around copyrights in smartphone software. Oracle alleged that Google infringed their copyright when Google supposedly copied Oracle's user interface for Google's Android smartphones. The High Court, in a 6-2 ruling, excluding Barrett because she wasn't around for deliberations, said that Google only used enough of the code for its developers to create the Android user interface and thus it was fair use. The court didn't resolve the issue of whether lines of code are copyrightable. The court also dismissed the lawsuit revolving around former President Trump's practice of blocking users on Twitter as moot. This week, plaintiffs who were blocked from Trump's Twitter account said the former president violated the First Amendment right as they argued Trump 
took official action to censor people's rights to petition against their government. Trump's counterargument was Twitter was a private company and that the former president was taking a private, not an official action. Those arguments don't matter now, as the case is dismissed. Justice Breyer gave a rare lecture at Harvard Law this week where he said he was worried about the Supreme Court's public standing in the midst of extreme partisan division. He also complained about the media's tendency to point out which presidents nominated which justices and by pointing out their partisan bias from their past rulings. He also cautioned against expanding the court, the term referring to adding more justices to the court because of unhappiness with the current nine-justice makeup. The rule of law has weathered many threats, but it remains sturdy. I hope and expect that the court will retain its authority but that authority, like the rule of law, depends on trust, a trust that the court is guided by legal principle, not politics. Structural alteration motivated by the perception of political influence can only feed that latter perception. By the way, Breyer was nominated by Clinton and has a liberal bent. <laughs> Liberal activists have been calling on Breyer to retire considering his age so that Biden can nominate a younger liberal justice to the court while Democrats hold the slightest lead in the Senate, which would have to approve any Supreme Court nomination. The Supreme Court also went after California's COVID restrictions once again, this time lifting a ban on religious services inside private homes. You may recall the conservative majority went after California's restrictions on indoor church services in New York for limits on churches and synagogues. The current case dealt with California residents who were hosting Bible study groups in their homes, and although the state was actually getting ready to lift those restrictions itself on April 15th, the five-justice majority wrote that it wanted to make sure the state couldn't go back to that decision at a later time. Chief Justice Roberts joined the liberal justices in their dissent, and Justice Kagan wrote for the dissent saying the majority was interfering in the state's ability to handle its own public health crisis. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which has jurisdiction over New York's federal appeals, ruled that cities cannot use state law to sue companies for their climate change policies, preempting New York City's ability to go after companies like Chevron and ExxonMobil for their greenhouse gas emissions through nuisance law. A three-judge panel unanimously decided that climate change was such an international concern that the problem is best suited through federal statute and international treaties. In national news, while the pace of vaccinations continues to increase, the pace of hospitalizations due to spreading variants is increasing as well. The Midwest and Northeast are seeing the biggest increases in infections. Nearly 20% of Americans have been fully vaccinated, and 80% of K-12 teachers have been inoculated against COVID. The AstraZeneca vaccine ran into another bit of trouble when European regulators encouraged those under 30 years old to get alternatives to the AstraZeneca vaccine and said that despite there being rare occurrences, there are very slight chances of blood clotting in those who have received the vaccine. AstraZeneca had run into a lot of barriers in vaccine production and distribution, with European countries upset at this with which AstraZeneca administered vaccines. The UK variant of COVID is now officially the dominant strain in the US, according to CDC Director Rochelle Walensky. Officials warned this would be the case in January. 60 Minutes ran an investigation focusing on how wealthy Floridians from Palm Beach County, quote, cut the line to get their vaccinations first, while others had to wait. The investigation implicated Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who received $100,000 in campaign donations from the supermarket chain Publix, which received the right to distribute vaccines, which were sometimes located miles from elderly patients in need of inoculation, while wealthy residents were able to get vaccinated at nearby fire stations. Publix strongly condemned the inference that the supermarket chain politically influenced their exclusive vaccination contract, and Governor Ron DeSantis denied pay-to-play allegations, saying he met with county leaders about the easiest way to deliver vaccines, although some county leaders said they never met with the governor. 60 Minutes received a lot of criticism for trying to make a connection that some say was untenable, with Palm Beach Democrats coming to DeSantis' defense, saying they were the ones to request vaccines distributed through public stores, and not the governor through a pay-to-play scheme. 
Separately, DeSantis sued the CDC, demanding the federal health agency to allow for the reopening of the cruise industry, which provides a lot of revenue to the ports of Florida. Suspensions are lasting until June. Governors are making a renewed push to reopen schools that were closed due to the pandemic, putting an end to remote learning. Several governors that spoke with the New York Times said that scientific data case declines and the need for students to get back into in-person learning accelerated their moves. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis also has a separate set of issues with trying to get the collapse of a polluted reservoir under control. A wastewater reservoir is in danger of collapsing, threatening to send polluted water from a former phosphate plant into Tampa Bay. Officials are pumping water out of the reservoir to ease pressure on the walls, and there is an evacuation order in effect in surrounding counties. Weather trackers are forecasting another above-average hurricane season after a hard season last year. 17 expected hurricanes have been named, with the season lasting from June 1st to November 30th. 525 million Facebook users' data was leaked online this week caused by a hack that took advantage of a 2019 cyber vulnerability apparently patched by Facebook two years ago. The data included information that's public anyway, including phone numbers, names, and locations, but put together in a useful data set that can prove useful for scammers. Rival companies are making multi-million dollar bids to buy Tribune Publishing, a national major newspaper chain. After what looked like a done deal by hedge fund company Alden Global Capital to buy Tribune, Maryland hotel owner Stuart Bainham and Swiss billionaire Hans-Jörg Weiss made a competing offer for $635 million, forcing Alden to increase its offer by $200 million, landing on a $680 million offer. The deal represents the current landscape of the newspaper industry, with massive hedge fund companies gobbling up local newspapers and scaling them back. The trial of Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer who killed George Floyd, continued this week. The police chief who fired Chauvin took the stand, testifying that Chauvin's use of force was inappropriate. The coroner that examined Floyd also took the stand, saying that Floyd died from lack of oxygen, throwing the defense team's strategy that Floyd died more from his own health problems into flux. Later, medical expert Dr. Martin Tobin testified that Floyd's death was due to a low level of oxygen, further rebutting the defense's assertion that Floyd died from drug abuse. Arkansas Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson vetoed the legislature's bill to ban transgender medical treatments for trans youth, saying the lawmakers' attempts at outlawing puberty blockers and hormone therapies as a government overreach. But then the legislature overrode Hutchinson's veto, putting in place one of the most restrictive anti-trans laws on the books. 17 other states have similar trans bans. A Navy corpsman died after shooting and injuring two fellow Navy men this week, getting shot and killed after driving to Fort Detrick military base. Another shooting occurred in South Carolina, this time conducted by NFL pro footballer Philip Adams, who killed a local doctor. Dr. Robert Leslie, his wife Barbara, and his two grandchildren, Ada and Noah, before turning the gun on himself. Although Adams' family said that he started exhibiting mental health issues about two years ago, police are still looking for clues as to whether Adams targeted Dr. Leslie and his family. The most current information is that Adams was being treated by Leslie, and Leslie cut off his medication, which led to Adams targeting the doctor. In a recent hearing regarding whether the NRA should move their bankruptcy case from New York to Texas, NRA Chief Wayne LaPierre testified that he actually fled to a friend's yacht, because he feared for his safety after a spate of recent mass shootings and compared his level of danger to those facing U.S. presidents. There was an update to the episode where golf legend Tiger Woods wrecked his car and got seriously injured, with speed being the reason behind the crash. L.A. County Sheriff Alec Villanueva said Woods was driving more than 80 miles per hour in a 40 miles per hour zone, was wearing a seatbelt and wasn't on any drugs or alcohol, and wasn't given a ticket or arrested. Woods apparently thought that he was in Florida after his crash, never mind the fact that his crash happened in Los Angeles. The effort for Amazon workers to unionize at an Alabama warehouse failed after a majority of workers voted against the unionization effort. 1,798 voted against the effort, while 738 voted affirmatively. Union organizers are accusing Amazon of taking on illegal tactics against the organizing attempt, pointing to actions such as forcing workers to stay for meetings, persuading them to vote against unionizing, and even hanging posters in the bathroom. On the same day that Queen Elizabeth's husband Prince Philip died, I'm sorry, I had to work him in somehow, the legendary gangster rapper DMX passed away. 
The party up in here in Exxon give it to your artist apparently suffered a heart attack as a result of a drug overdose, landing him in a vegetative state, requiring the use of a ventilator to keep him breathing on his own. DMX, his real name was Earl Simmons, was able to start breathing on his own after a while, taken off the vent, but was effectively brain dead and was taken off life support. He was 50 years old. And that's it for this week's show of the 25th Hour, helping you stay on top of the 24-7 news cycle. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, share us with your friends, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can email your tips and suggestions at the 25th Hour News at gmail.com and become a patron today to support the show at patreon.com slash the 25th Hour News. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 